Okay, so what I thought I would do uh, is now go through some passages in Thessalonians uh, to help share with you the message of the writing, okay? And these are on your syllabus. These are chosen from things that are in the readings. Um, but before I, uh, before I do that, can I just tell you one thing about hope? Because the theme of this, these letters is, is hope. Uh, when we think of hope, we want to understand it the way St. Paul understood it. Okay? Now, hope is not a feeling. And when you're baptized, you get three theological virtues. Faith. Hope and charity. And we want to understand what these are. Okay, Faith isn't just like a feeling that you believe something. And hope isn't just like a feeling that you're optimistic. And charity isn't just kind of like, you know, you're nice to people. Okay, Let's talk about what this is. Uh, I was reading Pope Benedict, uh, his book Jesus of Nazareth. And he was likening the message of St. Paul to the story in John chapter 6 when when the Jews are talking about manna coming down from heaven. Something they didn't earn. Something they didn't deserve. Something was just handed to them. This is what we understand faith, hope, and charity to be. You can't earn them. Okay, They're gifts. They come right out of the sky. They come out of heaven. They're gifts to you. And faith is an ability to believe just because God said it. And you want to know how you believe? You want to know how you know that you believe? You act on it. Occasionally, you know, like I would teach high school religion, and I get these kids, and they would say, oh, you know, I, I believe it, but you know, I, I just don't act on it. Well, that means you don't believe it. Okay? It's like the story. Did I ever tell you the story of the man pushing the wheelbarrow over the tightrope? Oh, good. A man pushing a wheelbarrow over the tight... And if this shows up in a homily, just pretend like you never heard it before. A man pushing a wheelbarrow over the tightrope. And there he goes, pushing the wheelbarrow. And everyone down in the crowd goes, Hey, wow, that's great. Uh, can you do it again? Sure, I can do it again. He back he goes across the tightrope. Oh, that's wonderful. I bet you you can do it again. He goes, Oh, yeah? You think I can do it again? Sure. You sure I can do it again? Yeah. Okay, then. Hop in. <laughs> Well, if you really believe he can do it again, you hop in. That's faith. All right? Hope. Now, here's hope. Hang on to this. Because this is golden. Hope is the confident assurance that God will provide everything you need. On earth, and to get you to heaven. I didn't say he's going to get everything you want. But he's going to give everything you need. And you know what the fruit of that is? You don't worry. You know what the fruit of really having hope is? If you know that you're going to get everything that you need, you've got this beautiful, placid calm, and it's infectious. Because you're being taken care of. Now, if you really had that in your heart, that you're in the hands of a loving Father who's not going to let you fall, Peace. Kiss, worry, goodbye. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about hope. And then charity. Now charity is the ability to love somebody else because you see the presence of God in them. It's not because they're wealthy or poor or because they can help you or they're annoying or 
whether they smell or anything else. You know, good good qualities, bad qualities, doesn't matter. You see the presence of God in them. Like Francis of Assisi. You guys heard the story of him embracing the leper? Yeah. Charity. You can't do that on your own. It's like a... It's like, it's like, it's like a, a duck that could talk. Ducks can't talk. You find a duck that can talk, you think something's up. Ducks don't talk. Well, we don't have placid hope. We don't have charity. We have kind of a mild self-interest. Okay? We don't have faith. We have skepticism. But those abilities, they fall out of the sky. They're given to you. Okay, now that's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about hope. Okay? So let's take a look at now what Paul means when he, when he, when he talks to Thessalonians about hope. We're going to go over some passages. Okay, our first passage is uh, the very beginning. Okay? Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, okay, verses 1 to 10. You can follow along if you like. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, or Silas, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that He's chosen you, for our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you might be an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you, and how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. What's he saying, essentially, to the Thessalonians when he begins this letter? He's saying to them, they put their faith into practice so well that they, they caused a ruckus. Other people are talking about them. Okay, Interesting little beginning. He always says, grace to you and peace. Remember what I said about that last week? Those are the two greetings in the ancient world at the time. When a, 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 a Greek would greet you, they would say grace or kyre. And when a Jew would greet you, they'd say shalom or peace. So here's Paul bringing the two worlds together, kyre and shalom. From Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Why does he list three people? Two witnesses to vouch for the content of the letter. All right? This is an official letter. This is not a personal letter. Okay? It shows us that it's an official letter. And the very first thing that he does is he says he gives thanks to God for what happened. He doesn't give thanks to the Thessalonians for what happened. He gives thanks to God for what happened. Because like I just got finished saying, their acceptance of this was by grace. It wasn't by their own ability. Right? Hang on to that idea. God is the source of all goodness. And Paul gives thanks to him. There's a couple interesting little... You've got to listen when you hear these letters of Paul. It's, it's, it's rich with stuff. Like, think about this. Paul says... Um, he, says, he talks about their work of faith. These are deliberate words. Faith is a work. It's a work. Okay, It's inseparable from practice. And it's like what I just got finished saying. Um, you believe to the degree to which you act, and the corollary to that is the less you act, the less you believe. 
you know, but it, 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 it takes a little bit of effort. It's not completely passive. Don't get the idea that I'm saying these things and it's just effortless. There's always a cooperation when it comes with God. The labor of love. Thank goodness he talked about love being a labor. Anybody who thinks that love is a feeling or love is an emotion or love is a warm puppy or any of these things, they really don't know Christian love. One of my favorite quotations, uh, as I mentioned, I think, from the pulpit a couple of times, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Love in action, he said, is a harsh and a dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. We all dream that it's nice and pleasant. You want to know something, though? In heaven, it's going to be nice and pleasant. In heaven, it's going to be effortless. Here on earth, it's tough. Okay, why is it tough? Because we're bent out of shape, that's why. Something bent out of shape, you've got to put it back into shape. It takes effort. Okay? Steel screams when it's forged. But boy, is it strong afterwards. Labor of love. Steadfastness and hope. Hope is perseverance. Okay? And God gives you everything you need to endure, just as I got finished saying. But this is the kind of Christian practice that had been so fruitful. This is, uh, the, this is what has led others to faith, most especially their hope. Interesting little... Uh, I'll make a tangential point about hope. You've got two main sins against hope. One is presumption. The other is despair. Presumption is when you think it's all going to come to you with no effort. You're going to sit back and let God's gifts just happen to me. And I don't have to try at all. No, that's a sin against hope. Struggle. And the second is when you don't think you're going to have everything you need. When when, when God's not looking out for you. Uh, That's despair. Hope is what you need. Um, to help you to know that you're, it's going to be okay, okay? But but you're going to be it's going to be it's going to be difficult. And that's what Paul talks about. This next passage that I want to draw your attention to. Uh, uh, this is chapter three, okay, verses two to four. We send Timothy, our brother and God's servant in the gospel of Christ, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. You know what afflictions he's talking about? They're sufferings that they're going through. You yourselves know that this is to be our lot. For when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it's come to pass, and just as you now know. Okay, here's Paul's hope in suffering. Paul says, yes, there's suffering. Jesus never said, like, you know, as I've said from the pulpit, Jesus never said, come follow me and all your problems will be over. Okay? But there's going to be, there's going to be suffering for Christians. And as he says, as, as he says uh, to Timothy, all who want to live religiously in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. There's no way around it. But here's the hope in that, okay? That our holiness isn't just to the extent that we're kind of sitting in a pew in the church, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay? But our holiness is the extent to which our lives are like Christ's life. Okay? And he says there's two stages in Christ's life. There's suffering, there's death, there's humble obedient service, and stage two is eternal glory. And the message that Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand, the more you're like him in the first stage, the more you're going to be like him in the second stage. Okay? Um, uh, rejoice in the measure in which you share in Christ's sufferings. I tell you, you rejoice abundantly when his glory is revealed you will rejoice. 
Now, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. Um, the greater... The only thing that I could, I could say that I, that I could liken it to is the greater you allow yourself to be straightened out according to God's plan, the greater the, the ability to receive, you'll be able to receive to what He has to give. But the hope is that this is not for nothing. Suffering gains its meaning and we know that it's all for something. Okay? And this is what Paul's trying to tell them about. Now let's talk about this uh, main thrust here at Thessalonians 4, chapter 13, to, uh, verse 13 to 18. This is the big reason why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Okay? And you've probably heard this before. They read this kind of thing in funerals. We would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive or who are left will be caught up together with them to meet in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, Paul's talking about the parousia. Who's heard the word parousia? Who's never heard the word parousia? Okay, parousia is a Greek word, and sometimes it's used commonly in preaching in English and Bible classes, that kind of thing. Parousia means coming. Okay, uh, Parousia means presence. And to give you a good idea what parousia means, uh, let's pretend like the Pope was coming to Little St. Jude Church. That's a parousia. We'd be expecting him before he even arrived, and there'd be a buzz just at the word. That, that, that he was going to come. Okay, so parousia um, is uh, is is this idea. Uh, it's referring to the second coming of Christ, and they are fixated with the idea that Christ is is coming again. Uh, now, the original, the early church, they had a stronger uh, uh, stronger fixation with this than we do, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But just just a few things here. Um, uh, one of my favorite little passages here. You ever heard this referred to as those who are dead? Re- uh, you ever heard it referred to as those who have fallen asleep? Who's heard that before? Okay. It's actually a wonderfully hopeful image. And this is the reason why St. Paul uses it. The reason why he uses it is because... Um, well, St. Saint, Augustine has a little quote that explains it well. He says, uh, Why does it say asleep? If not to mean there will be a rising again. That's why St. Paul refers to the dead as asleep. You fall asleep... They're cut off from you for a time, but they're coming back, right? This may take some people longer than others, but they're coming back, okay? Right? And this is why St. Paul refers to it as, as those who have fallen asleep. Um, the phrase itself comes from, from pagan writings, but Paul gives it, uh, Paul gives it um, um, a tremendous Christian understanding, okay? And... Um, you know, we, we, have, we have an understanding of the parousia. It was a little bit stronger in the ancient church. Uh, some people think that in the ancient church, they thought Jesus was coming right back just real soon. Who's heard that before? Okay. That's actually not universally true. It was true in Thessalonica, all right? But it wasn't true universally. Part of the reason why we know it wasn't true was, if Jesus was coming right back again, why are they writing this down? 
Okay? Um, another reason we know that it isn't true is that Paul himself hedges on the idea of when Jesus is coming. If he refers to it uh, four times, okay, 2 Corinthians, here, Romans, um, and Philippians, and he always speaks of it in two ways. In some writings he says that he's going to come right back, and then in other writings he says, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Okay, so Paul's not entirely sure. The Thessalonians, however, they were expecting the second coming of Christ uh, very soon, and Paul uses this imagery. Now, we need to understand this is symbolic imagery. All right? um, this symbolic imagery that, that Paul is, is, is using here about being caught up in the clouds and meeting the Lord in the air, it's apocalyptic imagery. And you know about apocalyptic liter- literature? Okay, for those of you who don't know about apocalyptic literature, I'll just tell you, apocalyptic doesn't mean end of the world. Okay? Apocalyptic doesn't mean... Um, just the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic was a style of writing. Okay, apocalyptic was a, was a kind of, of writing, and it was popular from about 200 B.C. to about 400 A.D. And it was a highly symbolic uh, kind of writing. Um, and, and that's exactly what Paul was using here. He was drawing some imagery from, from Exodus. And you guys heard this before, is uh, the rapture. Who's ever heard of the rapture? Okay. Uh, it's... It's kind of like a fundamentalist thing to take this literally. You ever seen those bumper stickers that say, uh, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned? <laughs> you guys ever seen the counter bumper sticker to that? My favorite counter bumper sticker? In case of rapture, can I have your car? <laughs> I, I, I'd buy one if I could. I haven't, I've only seen them on other people's cars. But what's being taught here? Four things are being taught here. There will be a return of Christ, Okay. There's a sadness at death, and that's natural, and that's good. Okay? Um, an example of Christ himself. Shortest passage in the entire uh, New Testament. Domius Flavit, the Lord wept. He saw, his, uh, he saw his friend Lazarus had died, and Jesus himself wept. And if Jesus wept at death, that tells us it's not only natural, it even tells us that it's good. Okay? It even tells us that it's good. Um, but it also, it also says there will be a resurrection of the body. Okay? So this is the things that Paul is, is, is talking about here. Um, and then one last little passage here from, from 1 Thessalonians. Just the very, very end here. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But as the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a traveler, as travail comes upon a woman with a child, and there will be no escape. But you're not in darkness, brethren, that the day should surprise you like a thief. You're sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So let's not be asleep, as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night, but... Since we belong to the day, let's be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and hope for our helmet of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Okay, this is this is Paul's response to those who were expecting Jesus to come right away. And what he does is he surrounds this passage with moral exhortations. 
And he's saying, look, Jesus isn't going to come right away. You've got to be ready. But you've got to live as Christians while you're doing it. Okay? Uh, you know, Jesus himself said, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and how easy is the road, and how many they are who find it. How many people get that backwards? Lots of people get that backwards. How wide is the road that leads to heaven, and many they are who find it. And how narrow is the road that leads to destruction? And almost nobody's going there. I mean, you know, we don't have to actually believe that there's a hell. And if we do, there's nobody in it. And if there's anybody in it, well, it's only Hitler. Okay? <laughs> and that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. Okay? And that's exactly the opposite of what St. Paul says. And he says, be ready. Okay? So he's telling, saying all these things to the Thessalonians, and he's telling them to be ready. And so our theme in Thessalonians here, in First Thessalonians, as I said, um, um, was hope. And this is why. Okay? Because he tells you about the work of grace in your soul. Tells you what is coming and what you have to hope in. He tells you, don't be surprised in your suffering. And in fact, your suffering is a cause of hope. Okay? And you have an obligation to live morally. Because if you do, then what you receive at the last hour, that's something to hope in. Okay? So Paul writes this letter and he thinks that he has solved their problems. He thinks now the Thessalonians are going are, are to have all their problems solved, but it wasn't good enough. Okay? It wasn't good enough. They got 1 Thessalonians and they had problems with it. And so Paul writes another letter to the Thessalonians. You can think of 2 Thessalonians as um, kind of like summer school. Right? They didn't get the job done in 1 Thessalonians, so Paul has to write 2 Thessalonians. They were reassured okay, by their questions, but they still misunderstood. And what they really didn't understand was when Paul said, we who are alive and we who are left, well, um, you know, they, they, they didn't know what was going to happen to all their, all, their, all, their, all, their, all their loved ones. They still, still, weren't, they still weren't entirely sure. Um, and so he writes this very brief letter to, to clear things up, and he encourages them in their persecution. Okay? He explains some things that will precede the parousia, so hey, don't think this is happening right away. All right? And again, he tells them uh, to, to, to work diligently. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, uh, because it focuses on signs that are going to precede the end of the world, and for which there are no specific details. Okay? Uh, now, Jesus himself said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Did I ever tell you that I was working in inner city Philadelphia uh, for two years? It was when I was in seminary. I was assigned to inner city Philadelphia to teach in school. And some of these kids went to little churches down in the inner city uh, where they did not preach a wimpy religion. Okay, For people that were in very, very tough, tough circumstances. It was a fascinating thing. This is just an aside. This parish where I was working in inner city Philadelphia... The pastor told me the residents of that parish had a 50% chance of being a victim of a violent crime within five years. Half of his people within five years would be attacked in some manner of a violent crime in this part of town. Okay? That just helps you count your blessings, you know. But some of these kids, they went to these uh, churches in which they preached second coming of Christ, this imminent second coming of Christ. Um, and one of them was really kind of funny. It was... Um, the, the, the fire-baptized Holiness Church of God. Okay? And on the storefront of this church, they painted fire-baptized Holiness Church of God, but they didn't finish the letter G. 
they just left a little mark off. It was the Church of Cod. And I honestly think it's because, you know, they think Jesus is coming again next week. Why bother? Right? So anyway, this is somewhat like what these people were, were thinking. And Paul tries to tell them, okay, now look, i got two points for you. There are signs that are going to precede the end. And number two, live in the present. So let's take a real brief look at this, because it is just a brief letter. He's trying to patch up what he left behind. Okay? We're on chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians 1-8. to Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, and our um, assembly to meet Him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word, or by letter purported to come from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let nobody deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness has been revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you this? And you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and by his coming. Now don't get too freaked out over those those words. Uh, But Paul does say a couple of things that, uh, you know, Jesus himself says, just general signs that we all know. One big general sign, you know, before the end there's going to be a big falling out. It's going to be a big apostasy. Like Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find any faith? Okay? It's a haunting question. I always like to say the, the question remains unanswered because the answer depends on you. Okay? And um, he also says because lawlessness is going to reach its full measure, the love of many will grow cold. So something's going to happen by the end in which this huge falling away takes place. And Paul's like, look, Jesus told me this, so... It hadn't happened yet, so don't worry too much. And then something that really kind of might send shivers up your spine. He talks about the man of lawlessness. And he's not quite sure whether this refers to one individual like an antichrist or whether there's several people that are all hostile to the church, all hostile to the designs of God. Um, first letter of John says there's going to be an antichrist. Matthew and Mark, Jesus, both in both cases, he says that false messiahs are going to arise up. Okay, so Paul, he's not trying to predict the future. He's actually just trying to calm people down. Okay, until someone steps forward and there's this huge falling away from the faith, please, be working, okay? Get busy. Um, Last little passage I'll read you. Chapter 3 from 2 Thessalonians. Okay. Um, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition we received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying or toil or labor. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to anybody. And it was not because we thought we didn't have the right, but to give you in our conduct an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If someone will not work, let him not eat. We hear that many of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. We exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to earn your own living. Don't grow weary of doing what is right. Okay, so for these people that think that they can max out their credit cards, 
um, and they can just kick back and uh, wait for the second coming, Jesus says, uh, Paul says, get to work. Okay? And that's basically the message of 2 Thessalonians. So what you see here in the Thessalonians, most of the thrust of Thessalonians is the first letter. Okay? And I hope I made it clear as to uh, why Paul wrote his letter, trying to help the people, trying to give them, trying to, trying to fill them with hope. And then why Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, just to patch up a couple of loose ends there. Now next week, um, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians. All right? And 1 Corinthians, is a that's, a that's a big one. There's a lot to talk about in that and a lot to understand. You hear from 1 Corinthians all the time. Um, but before I uh, close this off, any questions about anything I said? Yes? It seems that Paul got all of his theological learning on the road to Damascus. The one thing that I would tell you in that is that um, that's where we know that Paul got his message from Jesus. That's where Paul received uh, what he says, I received this all from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, This might be helpful, but uh, St. Teresa of Avila, in her writings narrates how God, if he wants, can communicate decades of learning in an instant. And uh, St. Catherine of Siena claims that that's precisely what happened to her. She was in prayer one moment, and she walked out the next moment absolutely stunned. And they asked her what happened, and she said, well, I, I was just revealed all the secret things of God. Now she was special, okay? We're a separate case. We'll have a class on we'll have a class on the doctors of the church maybe next summer, okay? But uh, but um, but that Paul can but that God can reveal something in an instant uh, seems to be something that that that, that happened. And it, it, the best knowledge that we have was that that's what happened to Paul. He definitely learned it from Jesus Christ, and he had his vision on the road to Damascus. So we have to figure uh, it happened then, and it probably wasn't something that he sat down for weeks and weeks and years and. You know, took notes and that kind of thing. So chances are it was instantaneous on the road to Damascus. Best understanding I have, at least. Yes? Back up to um, hope, I had a hard time explaining um, hope and understanding that God gave everything you need. Yes. When, it's hard for me to explain to my children when they hear about suffering and death and starvation. Yes. I don't have Um, Here's the thing. Hope... Um, being everything that you need. Is it just for Christians who believe? No. It's for anyone who will accept. It's for, it really is for anyone who will accept. Uh, the, the theological virtue of hope, now that's a, that's a grace, okay? Uh, it, but, but, but God gives everyone everything they need. Um, that's, uh, that's it, you know, that's, I'll put it this way, the harder the suffering, the harder it is to understand. I can say that right out. But we gain our model of understanding from smaller things. You can understand in smaller things no pain, no gain. You can understand in smaller things the law of nature, whereby uh, struggle is nature's way of making you stronger. Um, um, You know, you could care, say, for a... uh, um, some sort of newborn wild animal, and, and, and you, could, you could make its, its early life easier 
Um, but if you did so, you might weaken it. It might not be able to survive in the wild. Struggle is nature's way. And you can use that as your understanding. I don't understand as the sufferings go greater and greater and greater. Okay? I do know that in everything, um, God, at least in his permissive will, is operative. So when, with, regard to, with, regard to, with regard to sufferings, I can, I can tell you God is giving us opportunities. Opportunities uh, in a spiritual sense, first of all, are deeply purifying. If you look back at the course of your own life, I think you'll recognize you are who you are because of what you suffered. Um, like, Rabbi, uh, like Rabbi Heschel famously said, the man who's never suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? Okay? Um, now, mystically speaking, and this is where it gets a little bit more difficult to understand, our sufferings can actually benefit others. We can actually offer them up. We believe that within the mystical body of Christ, nothing's ever wasted. I wouldn't try explaining anything beyond the level that you understand. Um, and for me personally, it's the smaller things that I understand. And then I understand the principle. And then for the rest, I kind of say, you know what, Lord? The greatest people who have ever lived had this confidence. The greatest people, like Padre Pio, said, uh, if you knew the value of suffering, you'd be fighting with one another to try to steal it. Now, believe me, I don't know the value of suffering that well. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm one of those people, you know, it's... it's, Spiritually, I'm just a little wimp. I I stub my spiritual toe and I go crying to God about it. Little little nothings, little spiritual hangnails get me in a tizzy. Um, And God, you know, He he gives me as much as I'm able to handle. Uh, So suffering, I, I, I know that it's deeply purifying for ourselves, for others. I know that from the perspective of heaven, we're going to see it as a participation in Jesus' own being, which will lead to a greater glory. Um, And apart from that, I think maybe you also, you kind of want to focus on the idea that uh, we get what we need. We don't get what we want. Here's maybe a concrete example right here in our own little church. Um, I want somebody to win the lottery, right? (laughs) I want somebody to get the Powerball. And then we'll just march right on over, we'll put that church right up. But you want to know what? We need something else. We need to learn patience. And we need to learn generosity. And we need to learn uh, uh, trust in providence. And we need to learn to, 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 uh, to sacrifice for somebody else. And all those experiences, they're going to shape our souls. And then we're going to put up a church... And we're going to have a congregation of people with souls that are more beautiful. And so God gives us what we need. Um, I, again, my, when you ask the question of suffering, you ask the hardest question of all. And the only thing I can say to you in response is, you explain it as best you know, and then you do have to challenge the recipient to take the leap of faith themselves. That's the best I can do for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good enough for one day? Okay, end with a little prayer.